Dennison in his column asks, is American Christianity under attack? And he goes on to write that ridiculing Christianity is not new. It began at the beginning of Christianity when the skeptics called attention to the Pentecost and they mocked spirit-filled believers and accused them of drunkenness. But he goes on to add, but slandering American Christians has clearly escalated in recent years. Those of us who defend biblical sexuality are now branded as homophobic. People who oppose same-sex marriage are accused of hating gay people. Pro-life supporters are allegedly waging a, quote, war on women. And when Christian columnist Rod Derer opposed same-sex marriage in his Dallas Morning News column, a campaign of harassment culminated in the newspaper having to hire off-duty police officers to guard his home and his family. Of course, you may remember when Chick-fil-A's charitable foundation made donations that were perceived as hostile to LGBT rights. Activists called for protests and boycotts. And a few years back, the television program Saturday Night Live mocked Christians in a parody of the film God is Not Dead 2. And earlier, they had enacted skits that likened Jesus to a movie character who murders his enemies. The magazine The Atlantic recently reported on the growing use of zoning laws to prevent religious groups from obtaining building permits. And since the day of Charles Darwin, it has been fashionable to believe that creation doesn't require a creator. Since Freud, many have contended that our belief in God is merely a projection of our desire for father image. Postmodernists today claim that all truth is personal and subjective, except, of course, for theirs. And in this view, the Bible is just a, a diary of religious experiences, and to them all roads lead to the same destination, the same mountain. He writes, finally, tolerance is the supreme value of our day unless you believe in objective biblical truth and biblical morality, then your beliefs must not be tolerated. As I was working on this message, I went back into my files and I pulled an article that I'd clipped just a couple of years back from the Wall Street Journal that was headed, quote, the new intolerance. And in the article, the author stated this, in the increasingly bitter battle between religious liberty and the liberal political agenda, religion is losing. The question the article goes on to ask is the question fair-minded Americans should ask before casting the first stone is who is really being intolerant? Now you may ask as I introduce this message, you may ask this morning, what does that have to do, pastor, with the seven churches of Revelation that we're studying? Well, today I want us to look at the third church that was addressed by Jesus in Revelation and this church, the church at Pergamum, was a church living in a culture much like ours. It was a culture where tolerance of just about anything except for God was expected and accepted. And this church, the church at Pergamum, had gradually succumbed to the spirit of the age, to the zeitgeist of the day, and it was tolerating beliefs and teachings that were in line with the pagan beliefs of other religions, and they were allowing it to be taught among them. And so I've headed this third church, the Tolerant Church. And when I use that, I don't mean that in a positive sense at all. They were tolerating things they 
they should not have tolerated. I think you'll see that in the text this morning. Stand with me if you're physically able to do so as we read God's Word this morning, beginning in chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what the Scripture says. And the angel of the church uh, in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, that's his word, Christ's word, this is what he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, uh, what the Spirit, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one except the one who receives it. Father, thank you, uh, Father, that you instruct us. You don't just correct us, you instruct us in the way of righteousness. We pray this morning as we look at this third church in this book, that, Father, you would use it to uh, teach us so that we uh, not become like those who would accept things simply because the culture accepted them. Father, help us to learn to use your word as a filter that we might view our world as you view it. Now speak to us, we pray. We're listening, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. Now let me give you a little bit of background about Pergamum, this church. I told you that all of these churches we're talking about were in the same basic geographic region. They were within about 100 miles of each other uh, totally. And Pergamum was not a coastal city. The last two churches, Ephesus and then Smyrna last week, were coastal cities. But Pergamum was roughly 20 miles inland, and it was about 60 or 70 miles north of Smyrna. And it was a northern, uh, it's the northernmost church in all of the churches that we'll be looking at. It was a strategic place. It was a strategic military outpost. And one of the reasons was because it had an acropolis that rose a thousand feet above the plains below. And so it made it a perfect lookout place for the Roman armies to have an outpost. It became home to the first, what we call, uh, emperor cult. There in Pergamum was dedicated a temple to Augustus to worship him as many of the emperors of Rome began to see themselves like gods. And so the first such temple was built there uh, to support and uh, to bring worship to Augustus. And near the Acropolis that I mentioned, there were other pagan uh, kinds of temples. There was a temple to Zeus there, to Athena, to Dionysus, to Dementor, and a temple to Ashlepius. This temple was special to them because if you were sick, you would go to the temple of Ashlepius, and there you supposedly could seek uh, healing from your sickness. The church at Pergamum came under fire because 
the culture around it was, spiritually speaking, hell on earth. The result was that the culture, like the other churches, the culture pressured them to conform and to accept the false heretical teachings of the day, in particular the Nicolaitans and Balaam, along with the gospel. But the church had stood fast in the midst of the persecution they were undergoing. One of their own, Antipas, is even mentioned as having been uh, uh, murdered, martyred because of the faith and how even though he was martyred among them, they held fast. They were under this kind of persecution and they had stood fast in claiming that Jesus was the Savior. They weren't ashamed of Christ, but the problem was, as we'll see, they were willing to tolerate other aberrant beliefs, not just in the culture, but allowed into the church itself. And with that as background this morning, I want to show you four things about this church and the choice that it faced. The first thing I want you to note is the church's predicament. We see that in verses 12 and 13 where Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. This is a predicament for them because he says it's where Satan's throne is. These believers lived in an environment, they lived in a culture where Satan's power and his influence dominated them, including dominating religion with pagan beliefs. And to their credit, in spite of their predicament, they were not ashamed of Jesus. Jesus knew how difficult their world was and, and how hard it was for for them to take a stand for him. He understood their predicament. Did you, you notice he said, I know where you dwell. I know the predicament you're in. When Jesus looks at you, you may say, it's tough living for God in this world. I want to tell you something. He knows the predicament of living for him in a fallen world and in a fallen culture. And he knew that they were not ashamed. They were being persecuted, but they weren't ashamed of Jesus. They were willing to endure persecution for the sake of Jesus. This is commendable to them. And you have to understand in the age of the Roman Empire that Rome was incredibly religious. They had so many gods and goddesses and temples I shared this background just a moment ago with you about Pergamum, but do you remember last week Smyrna? And I named all the temples that were in, in Smyrna, and did you notice the overlap? So temples uh, to Athena and Zeus and all of the, and then you go to the next city, and guess what you find? Temples to Z, uh, Zeus and Athena uh, and Demeter, and all of these are there. Every, Rome was incredibly religious. They, they tolerated every conceivable kind of worship and believed uh, every conceivable kind of belief system that was out there because they were afraid. They were afraid if they didn't accept them all, they would miss one. And that would be the one that they didn't need to miss. So they, were, they just said, we'll just take them all. What's yours? Their problem with Christians were Christians wouldn't do that. And Christians just wouldn't blend in and say, okay, we'll just be one of all the many religions. Rome would have been fine if they'd have done it, but they wouldn't. Their problem was that these Christians said that there's only one God and there's only one way. Do you know that the, the criticism that was labeled against the Christian church then has been the label against the Christian church through the ages? You're, you're too narrow-minded. You're not accepting enough of other uh, belief systems and, and those sorts of things. 
God has just simply called us to speak the truth in love. There, uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by the way, in the, uh, in the Greek, there's the definite article. And that's very important because it means I am uh, the way, not a way. See, Rome believed there were lots of ways. And the culture you live in today believes there are lots of ways. But Jesus said, I'm the only way. There's no other way but by there are two paths. There's a broad way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow way that leads to life, Jesus said. But Jesus said, I am the way. I'm not a way. I'm not a truth. You know, today we commonly hear people say this, well, whatever truth works for you. Now, that's an absurd statement because everything can't be true, right? But whatever truth works for you. Jesus said, I am the truth. All truth is measured by Jesus. It's not measured by being a Baptist, by the way. It's not measured by being religious. They were incredibly religious. It is Jesus is the standard upon which truth from which truth is discerned. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he said. But they were incredibly religious. Now think back to a passage in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where Paul is on the Areopagus. We call it Mars Hill. I've been there several times, and it was a place where the, uh, the, it was kind of like a, a Hardee's where the old men go to drink coffee. And uh, there was this place, except it was the old sages, and they would go and they would gather right below the Acropolis. There's this place, and they would gather there, and they had all these different monuments to the various Roman kinds of gods and any other gods. They had all these monuments to them. And on occasion in Acts 17, Paul comes upon them at Mars Hill, and you've got to get this in mind. He walks up and he says, Men of Athens... I perceive that you are very religious. And because as I was observing, you had all these gods, and you even have a god erected to the unknown god. That's their safety net. Do you have a, you don't have a god to, oh yeah, yes we do, it's this unknown god. See, he, he was the safe. In football, we call him the safety valve. He's the guy you go to when you can't go to the others. And so uh, Paul tells them that I, I, you're, you're very religious. You've got God's to everything. And he said, that unknown God, that's the God I've come to tell you about. And he proceeds to tell them the gospel and who Jesus is and that he is the only God. Rome was incredibly religious. Uh, it, it didn't mind religion. Just like the age we're living in, we're in an incredibly religious age. The only hostility is pointed at Christianity, just like it was 2,000 years ago. Why is that? Because Christianity says we're not one of, we are the way. Jesus Christ is the way. And that's what they were saying. They were saying that in Pergamum, and yet some people, uh, some people had brought in some aberrant beliefs. You say, now why is all this important to us today? Well, because... Like Pergamum, we live in a world deeply under the influence of Satan. Uh, John writes in 1 John, he says, And we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Never forget that. This is important. Jesus said you live where Satan's throne is. And just like the church at Pergamum, we live in a world today that is deeply under the influence of Satan. Another reason it's important to us is because one of Satan's greatest weapons to combat your faith is to introduce you to subtle compromises that cause you 
to tolerate godless beliefs. It's one of, the, it's one of his greatest weapons. John writes again in 1 John 2 and verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then third, it is, it is important to us to understand what's going on here because biblical compromise will eventually blind you to what's true. And I believe a lot of, the, uh, of, of our culture is there. I believe a lot of Christians are there. They've, they've accepted things that are unacceptable to God. And yet, well, but I know somebody, and, and they're nice people. and all. There's no doubt about those kinds of things. But, friend, what does God have to say? When you compromise biblically, eventually it will blind you to truth. That's where our culture is, friend. And there's a price that's going to be paid if we're not already paying it. I thought about uh, the, the encounter that uh, Elijah had on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that story? And it was a showdown. And all of Israel, God's people gathered to watch, and all the pagans gathered to watch to see whose God was the God. You remember Elijah finally calls down fire from heaven, and it laps up the water and the sacrifices and all then, and, and takes out these wicked, evil uh, prophets of Baal. And then Elijah... As these people are gathering to watch the showdown, the, the people of God, Elijah makes this statement. He came near to all the people, that is the people of God, or at least those who had confessed to be people of God, and he asked this question, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And here's what's interesting. You know what the people of God did? It says they didn't answer him a word. You know what had happened? They had so compromised their belief that they didn't want to take a position until they saw the outcome of the showdown. And Elijah on the front end said, listen, if God is God, follow him. Make up your mind. Don't start, keep limping around saying, well, I, you know, I don't want to hurt their feelings. And, 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 and yet, I, I, you know, I agree with this, but I, I don't want to. And that's what they were doing. He said, if God is God, follow God. And if he's not, follow Baal. I heard it said of a man who had no biblical conviction, convictions. He has both feet firmly planted in midair. Now listen, some of you who are watching, some of you who are listening here live, some of you are living in this very place. You've confused biblical truth with cultural acceptance. You say, well, pastor, it's hard taking a stand for God where I work. Jesus knows where you dwell. It may be the throne of Satan. There are a lot of people who think their job is the throne of Satan. But you say, it's hard for me to take a stand for God where I work. Or it's hard taking a stand for God in my family. Or it's hard taking a stand for God at my school. It was hard for the believers at Pergamum. But they did it even in the place where Satan dwells. And so like Elijah said, if, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now, now, while they stood fast for Jesus, they endured persecution for Jesus, they still had a problem that they had to face. And that's number two, the second thing I want you to see, and that is the church's problem. But I have a few things against you, Jesus says. And here's the problem. While the church had tolerated... Uh, 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 faulty cultural beliefs, some had gone even further. 
Okay, now watch this. They hadn't just tolerated some paganistic ideas and beliefs. Some had gone even further, and guess what, where they'd gone? They had gone to teaching them to others in the church. And the church had allowed it to go on. This is the problem. Jesus commends them. You've taken a stand. You've been willing to die for my name. You haven't been ashamed of me. But this is what I've got against you. Here's the problem. You have a predicament, but your problem is you have tolerated things that are intolerable in my family. And the reason it is intolerable is because it leads to spiritual disaster. Now listen to this, what you tolerate in belief will eventually be tolerated in your teaching. And what is tolerated in your teaching will eventually manifest in your behavior. What, what, let me say that again, what, what you tolerate in belief will eventually manifest itself in what you teach. And and what you teach will eventually manifest and influence your behavior. And that's what was happening. So some of them were being influenced. They were standing for Christ, but all the while they had a, a virus running through their, their, their family because they were believing things that Christ had told them were unacceptable. At Pergamum, he identifies two heretical belief systems that were being tolerated. The first was the Balaam heresy. And essentially that harkened back, as he said, to Balak, the, the, the king of the Moabites, who, who solicited Balaam to come and bring a curse against his own people, Israel, if you remember the story, in order to bring God's people down and then to turn them toward the pagan gods of Moab, that involves sexual perversion and gross immorality. That's what the Balaam cult was wanting to do, uh, or, or the, the Balaam heresy, that's where it led to. And by the way, uh, more than just a set of specific teachings, in the Jewish mind or Jewish thought, Balaam became a symbol of all the things that led men and women to obscene conduct and the forsaking of God. It was... In essence, the infiltration of worldliness. The Balaam heresy. And then he speaks of the Nicolaitan heresy. Like Balaam, the Balaam heresy, the Nicolaitan heresy promoted and practiced idolatry and sexual immorality as an expression of their legitimate worship. Why was their problem so serious to God, these two heresies that they were allowing? Well, but we believe this. You know, we sing that song, Aaron, I believe. I love that song. What a great confession of faith. I love that song. And they, they, they made a come. Well, we believe we'll stand for We're not ashamed for Jesus, but they didn't really understand what they believed or what they were allowing to infiltrate their system. And, and Jesus takes it seriously. Why? Because Jesus knows when you let the wrong stuff grow, when you let the wrong stuff grow, sooner or later it pays disastrous consequences. And so it was very serious. And on top of the fact that the first commandment of God is that you shall have no other gods beside me. And here they were, they were tolerating belief systems and all, of all kinds of God in the church. Now they, they 
obviously had no control over the Roman system, and we, we wouldn't fault them just like you and I have no control over the system, but we do have control over the family, don't we? And see, they were allowing it into the family. They were allowing it to, it had infiltrated uh, the family of God. The, a kind of a worldliness and a paganism. You say, well, I, I, Pastor, I don't have those kinds of beliefs. And well, that's good, and I would certainly hope that would be the case. But, but my question to you would be, do you have other kinds of gods? They had all these gods, or they were allowing for other gods, even within the family of believers, or at least the church of God. And, and, but you say, I don't, I don't have little idols that I worship. I don't allow for those, and I don't even condone that uh, for others. But, but listen, do you have other gods or idols that you allow to exist in your life? Do you know how to identify? Do you know how to identify other gods and faulty beliefs in your life? There's a real simple test. It's a three-way test. I'm gonna give it to you real quick. There's a three-way test that you can identify whether you've got other gods or idols in your life. Number one, here's the test. Check your time. Check your time. What or who controls the clock or calendar of your life? Number two, your treasure. Who owns the stuff you possess? And how do you use it? Your resources, all of that indicates something about the Lord or ruler of your life. And then third, your talents. How are you using the abilities and the gifts that God has entrusted to you? You are accountable for all of these things. All of us are accountable for all. And these things will tell you what is really Lord or who is Lord of your life. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, time, treasure, talents, that'll tell you. Several years ago when the space shuttle Challenger exploded, you remember that, the whole country was in shock and, and, and mourning. But soon the shock gave way to outrage and to scandal as it was discovered that cost-cutting and carelessness regarding the components that didn't quite meet the required standard, these components had been allowed through quality control uh, to be incorporated into the shuttle. And the design specified that certain components must be engineered within a particular degree of tolerance. There's a thing called, I read a book afterwards, and it's called Criticality 7, and it's about 700 individual parts on a space shuttle. If any one of them uh, uh, fail, it is complete and total disaster. This was just a, a small thing, but it had been tolerated through quality control, and the inspectors tolerated the imperfections outside of the specifications, and people died. Listen, when lives depend on parts being tooled to, the, to a precise measure in millimeters, tolerating imperfections has serious consequences, doesn't it? Well, likewise, when we tolerate the smallest spiritual imperfections, it's only a matter of time until they explode with destructive spiritual consequences in our life. Just the smallest kinds of things. They tell me, uh, I had some men in my church in Florida who were uh, engineers in the space program, and they would talk about how just fractions, uh, not even full degrees, but if a, if a, a spacecraft is uh, returning uh, from uh, space and just 
minuscule degree differences are enough to cause it to miss a window of re-entry and skip off into space never to be recovered. They said just the fine, because over time what's tiny, they said, would cause it to continue to track off and track off and track off and track off. And it seemed like a small thing until you had extrapolated it out over hundreds of thousands of miles in space. And that's what the the small things, if we're not careful, the smallest spiritual imperfections, if we tolerate those in our life, it's only a matter of time until they bring consequences. But far too many people who would never dream of tolerating the slightest degree of imperfection in matters affecting their physical lives think nothing at all about tolerating beliefs that are damaging to their spiritual life. So what's the remedy? Well, that leads to number three, the third thing I want to show you about the church at Pergamon, the church's prescription. The church's prescription. They, they had a predicament, man. They lived in a bad time. They, they had a problem. They had uh, allowed themselves to tolerate things um, that they should not have tolerated. And then number three, they're given a prescription. Jesus gives them a prescription. Verse 16 is where we see it. Therefore, repent. Now, Jesus never tells, look, look, this is a wonderful thing about our Savior. He never tells us we have a problem without providing a prescription. Jesus never says to you, here's your problem, figure it out. In fact, the scripture is given to us, Paul writes and says, for reproof and correction, not just to point it out, not just to say, here's where you're sinning, here's where you're missing it, here's what you're tolerating. Jesus always says, here's the the problem, here's the prescription. And the prescription in this case is real simple. It's just real simple. Repent. Now think about it. Even though they were dwelling where Satan's power was great, And Jesus knew that. And even though they were holding fast to Jesus' name, and Jesus knew that, and even though they refused to deny Jesus before the world, and Jesus knew that, with all of that, Jesus does not give them a pass. And He doesn't give us one either. We must be careful not to play the balance game. Y'all know what the balance game is? The balance game is when we try to balance our good against our bad and then uh, uh, give ourselves a pass. And, And I mean, when you look at this and you see these things, they're living, they're dwelling where Satan's throne is straight. Satan had a stronghold here. They're living in that place. They're standing for Jesus. Some had died for Jesus. Uh, They're not ashamed of Jesus. You would think that they might get a pass from Jesus for allowing some of this other junk, right? You would think, I mean, we might do that, right? Well, you know, but you still think, think about, you know, the stance that they've taken. Think about how we've stood for Christ. Yeah, we got some, we got some theological loonies over here, but, but, but we can put up with that because we know what we believe. And I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is saying, yeah, right now, but in time, there will be consequences. That's why it's so serious to him. Judge uh, Horace Gray of Boston, who, by the way, would later go on to serve on the United States Supreme Court, once said to a man who had escaped justice on a technicality, 
The judge said, listen, and I quote, I know that you were guilty. And you know that you were guilty. And I wish for you to remember something. That one day you're going to stand before a better and wiser judge than me. And when you do, there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to the legal technicalities. You know, man's justice is always subject to errors, isn't it? But God's is perfect. No sin escapes God's uh, 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 gaze. And though punishment is sometimes delayed, and by the way, you know why God sometimes delays His punishment? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Sometimes He delays His judgment because He's giving a room to repent. No one, however, escapes the judgment of God. No one gets a pass on a technicality because God's justice is perfect. At Pergamum, they were tolerating things that were spiritually destructive to their lives and would eventually be destructive to the church. And were, these things were seriously offensive to God, and they were called to fix it. They were called to fix it by repenting. Now, let me get more personal with you. How about you? Did you know you're a temple? The Bible says, Paul says, you are the temple of God because the Spirit of God dwells in you. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You are a temple. Are you tolerating anything in your life that is displeasing to God? You're a temple. Are you tolerating that which you know is displeasing to God? Do you know what the prescription is? It's the very same. It is repent. It's repent. But then there's one last thing that I want you to see this morning, and that is I want you to see the church's promise, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear to uh, hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and and a, a white stone, he says. So what, what is the promise to the church? Well, the word if is very important here. If you take notes in your Bible, uh, circle that little statement. If not, it's important. Because this is where their choice comes in. Remember, seven churches, seven choices. And this is where the, church, uh, the, the choice comes in. If they do not choose to repent, if they do not choose to get right with God, he promised that he would come quickly and deal with those who refused to repent. And his promise is decisive, isn't it? I mean, it, he, he doesn't hedge here. It's very decisive. He says he will deal with those who continue to mislead his people, to those who allow it and to those who buy into it. It's decisive. He's not saying, look, I may come and make an example out of a few of you. No, he said, look, I'm going to come and deal with them decisively. It's directed. He used the phrase war. Did, 
Did you catch that? I will come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I, that's a whole sermon there, and so I'm not going to uh, stay there long. But his war is directed at the unrepentant. It's directed at the worldly. It's directed at those who do not get it. But guess what? There is collateral consequences because they all, even those who got it, had allowed it, and therefore there's consequences to everyone if there's not repentance. It's decisive, it's directed, and it's dramatic. He says all that he needs is the sword of his word. That's the dramatic power of the word of God. You remember the story of Balaam? You remember that story? If you don't, go back and read it. But if you remember the story of Balaam, God intercepts what Balaam is doing before he can go down and bring a curse on on Israel, and he and you remember the angel with a drawn sword stands and has a message from God, and that's where the, by the way, that's where the, the donkey talks. Remember, the donkey saw the angel, and uh, and then it was made known to to Balaam, and he saw it. And it says he has a drawn sword there. Well, the picture is because he's talking about Balaam. Here's the sword. You know what Jesus' sword is? It's his word. Now think about that. That's entirely consistent, is it? Because the, in Hebrews, we're, we, we're talk, uh, told about the, the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? And if you, did you notice when we read the first part of this, this passage, verse 12, the Word of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's the power of the Word of God. And, and here, the church's promise is uh, based upon the Word of God. It's dramatic. And at, the, at His Word, things change. At His Word, things change. You know, there's nothing that the Word of God, given by God, obviously, can't affect. Why do we preach the Scripture? It is the Word of God. And we know that the Word of God, when it, it will not return void, it will accomplish God's purpose. There are people you're watching by live stream, people around this uh, country, across the seas, people are watching us, and then live here in this audience, and the Word of God is trying to work in your life. Listen to the Word of God. Listen to the Word. You say, well, I don't like the preacher. That's not even the point. Listen to the Word of God. What is God saying through His Word? And what is He saying to you? And it might be that today He's saying to you, you have a choice to repent. Stop tolerating the false gods and the false teachings of the age and uh, again return unto the truth. Because there are two promises. I called this a promise. What are those two promises? There's the promise of a heavenly, of heavenly retribution if they choose not to re repent. He says, I'll come to you quickly. I'm going to come to you quickly, and I'm going to deal with this if you choose not to repent. And then the second promise is, however, a positive promise. So the, the, the choice is you want the, you want the wrath or do you want the blessing? The second promise is a promise of heavenly reward. Heavenly retribution or heavenly reward? Verse 17 is, again, what says, then what will I do? He... The, that has an ear here, and to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
Now, the hidden manna, of course, is a symbolic thing referencing back to the the wilderness time. But essentially, uh, scholars believe what what Jesus was saying to them is if you get it right, you'll be able to enjoy the unending fellowship of the kingdom of God, the never-ending supply. Edward Gibbons wrote in The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire that in Rome society, uh, in Roman society, all of uh, religions uh, of the day were to, to the people considered equally true. Well, one's is no, none are uh, higher than the other. They're all equally uh, acceptable. He goes on, Gibbons goes on to say that to the philosophers, all religions were equally false. And to the government, all religions were equally useful. How can we use them? Now, that is the way it was in Pergamum. And that seems to be the way it is in the 21st century we're living in. But listen to me, it is not the way of the church of God. It may be the way of the age, but it is not the way of the church of God. I love a movie, the movie Braveheart. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a historical movie, and I, I warn you in advance, it uh, has some scenes that are gory. And uh, it tells a story of the uh, 13th century Scottish commoner named William Wallace, and Wallace led his country to freedom from an oppressive English rule. And uh, it's fueled by his own personal loss and and this great sense of destiny he has for his, his nation. And Wallace leads a ragtag band of farmers and villagers who eventually defeat their vicious oppressors. But the turning point for Scotland comes at the Battle of Stirling, and, and the Scots are vastly outnumbered by the English, and, and the Scots begin to flee and break ranks and, uh, before the battle even begins when they realize that they're, they're outmanned. And against that scene, Wallace rides onto the, onto the field and he makes a passionate speech that inspires this band of ragtag farmers and, and brothers and, and he inspires them to fight for what they know and what they believe. And the Scots rally and they follow, uh, follow Wallace into battle and they win the first major victory of the war and it becomes a turning point against the English. I love the movie because it's true. And I love the character, William Wallace. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure to be honest, what's so compelling about it, but I've thought through it, and I thought my conclusion as to why it's so compelling and why his character is so intriguing to me. And, and I came to three things. Number one, it's because he is such a man of courage in a very fearful setting. He just has this courage, you know, and you, you just look and say, God, help us all to have that kind of courage, especially for the kingdom. And then, then it is, he is such a man of commitment. I mean, he is, he is committed to what does it take. He's committed to rallying these guys, to trying to, to equip them and try to, to make them successful in the battle. Why? Because he knows what's at stake, and so he is committed to it. And I, I think that that's one of the things that is so compelling about him to me. But then the thing most of all to me is that he's such a man of conviction. He's such a man of conviction that he will eventually give his life for the cause. In fact, later in the movie, when they capture him and they tie him up 
publicly they disembowel him before the people alive but he stood for the conviction that conviction led the that nation to their own freedom the same kind of conviction is needed today in the church of god and i genuinely believe that pergamum though there's so much to commend them for pergamum problem was that they they had some commitment they they had some courage but they lacked conviction to do what needed to be done the fact is this and here's the lesson this is at the bottom of your outline god says there are just some things that are intolerable There are just some things that are intolerable. In your life, there are some things that may be intolerable. Things that you are putting up with. Things that you are giving yourself a pass on that God doesn't give you a pass on. And the the message to Pergamum and the message to you and to me is this, repent. Repent. What you're tolerating to God is intolerable. Intolerable in the culture, intolerable in the church, and intolerable in your life. It may be that you're tolerating cultural opinion over God's Word, or you're tolerating sin over repentance, or you're tolerating the idea that they're there, there are plenty of different ways to get to God. It's amazing today how many people who claim to be followers of Christ also claim that there are just lots of different roads to take. You can take whichever one you want. One religious road gets you to the same place, but that's not what the Scripture says. Be careful that you don't tolerate that belief. It is the message of the age. It is the spirit of zeitgeist uh, uh, among us and that says just uh, everybody just... Now listen, listen. This is not a call to go out and start trying to undermine everybody. We are to speak the truth in love, but we are not to tolerate spiritual garbage in our lives or or call it acceptable in our churches or in the culture. I end with this. Some years ago, I'd been talking with a man about Christ, and we were eating lunch at Shoney's. And I'm sharing the gospel with this man, and he is very tuned in. And there's a guy sitting at a table next to me, and I notice he keeps looking over. He, you know, he keeps looking over, he keeps looking over. And so he's listening. I said, well, God, maybe this is a two-for-one day, you know. Two people are going to get the message of the gospel. And so I'm talking to this guy I'm with, and I'm right at the point where I'm about to ask him, is there any good reason you couldn't trust Christ as your Savior? And the guy at the next table can't stand it any longer. And he says, to the guy I'm talking to, he says, what he's saying is right. You, you, that, what he's saying is right. You need to listen, uh, you need to, listen to that. Uh, what he's telling you is just right. And I thought, well, praise God. He just reinforced it. And then I said to him, I said, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? <laughs> and he said, oh, yes. I, I sure have. 
And I've also trusted Buddha, and I've trusted Muhammad, and I've trusted Confucius. And he said, because we need them all. And I'm thinking, then I want to look at the guy and I say, no, don't, don't listen to him. But that's the age we're living in, isn't it? Oh, yeah, Jesus, 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 and Muhammad, and Buddha, and Zoroaster, and all of, all of these guys. We need them all. No, we don't. Only one of them died. Only one of them died for you. And by the way, all the others are still in the grave. Only one of them conquered the grave. That's why we have victory in Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? No one looking about in this place. Before we're gone, is there any good reason, those of you who are watching us live stream in this live audience, is there any good reason you couldn't trust Jesus as your Savior? If you don't know Him, you need to do that today. You can do it right now in this place, watching online, listening by radio, television, whatever it is, whatever the medium is, right now you can call on Him. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be, but will be. You can call on Him right now. How do you do that? In your heart? sincerely you call out to him lord jesus thank you for loving me i know i'm a sinner i need you and only you only you can do for me what i can't do for myself only you are the way the truth and the life and i invite you to come into my life forgive me of my sins thank you for dying on the cross for my sins be my savior if you've made that prayer today i can assure you that god has heard that prayer but maybe you're here this morning and say, you know, I, I, I have trusted Christ. I know Christ. I have no doubts about Christ being my Savior. But, you know, I've been tolerating that which is intolerable to God. Or I've allowed my mind to fall under the influence of the enemy of my soul. And I've, I've just swallowed things that I shouldn't swallow. I, I've just, and those things are working their way through me. And I, I just need to repent of those things. Well, then repent. Right now, you say, God, I'm sorry. I, he, and, and by the way, in your heart, you, you tell him, here's what I'm tolerating that I shouldn't be tolerating. Here, here's, Father, what I've allowed and I've accepted that shouldn't be so in my life. Now, Lord, would you hear these prayers in Jesus' name? Amen. Would you stand with me for our invitation? I'll be at the front. Staff will be on the sides, just like always. But don't let this be an always for you. Is there a decision you need to make or you just made, a prayer you've just prayed? Maybe you need to join Ridgecrest. We'd love to have you. You know, you can do all of this on that little tear-off panel. You can turn it in at the welcome desk. You can put it in the basket. You can indicate whatever decision you've made. That's one thing. Uh, those online, you have instructions what you can do. But listen, there's nothing like, in my view, there's just nothing like the public commitment of our lives to Jesus Christ. If you prayed that prayer to trust Him, would you slip out from the balcony, ground floor, come this way? If you, if you need to bend your knee before Him. And by the way, one of the greatest exhibits of a changed life and a turned direction is that we bow ourselves before Him. Maybe you're praying for someone, praying about something. Don't miss this moment. It might not, and I mean this, it might not come again. And Jesus might not move in your heart like He is at the moment. So don't miss this. 
So come to join. Come to confess Christ. Come and pray. Whatever it may be, you come right now as Brother Aaron the choir leaders. Right now, you move. Come on.